prayers, and many of you offered to, to send us or bring us food, and Meredith and I are very grateful for that. Uh, so I can recommend uh, very strongly, don't get it. <laughs> uh, it's not fun. Um, but I am glad to be back with you this morning. And so we're finally going to pick up our series back in Ecclesiastes. Uh, so if you picked up a cart Bible, you can find this on page 557. We'll be in Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verses 10 through 17. So as you turn there, I just want to remind us of some of the context uh, that we haven't been in in Ecclesiastes for a while. Uh, really, our passage this morning is picking up a question or, or an issue that, that our preacher Solomon has been dealing with for some time. Uh, in chapter 6 and 7, he considers the, uh, the vanity of those who are wicked and those who are righteous and how uh, they seem to get the reward the other deserves. And so in chapter 8, in our, in our section this morning, uh, that's largely what Solomon's dealing with. And so we'll consider that. We'll consider uh, how this passage is also calling us to faith. Uh, but before we study, won't you join me in prayer one more time? Gracious Lord and God, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the word that we've heard uh, the past several weeks from Hebrews and, and from the book of Matthew. Lord, we thank you uh, for how you provided for us. We thank you for your word that reveals yourself to us, uh, Father, and teaches us uh, how we might come to know you and that calls us to faith. So this morning as we study, would you... Uh, open our eyes to, to see your word, open our, our hearts and our minds to understand what you have for us. So we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So here now from Ecclesiastes chapter 8, beginning in verse 10. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily. The heart of the children of man is fully set to, to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God, because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear before God. There is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. And I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful, for this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep. Then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading and to the hearing of his word. Now, many years ago, I was uh, the coach of a high school soccer team. I had worked uh, with these students for several years. I knew them, they knew me, and I pushed them. I pushed them pretty hard. And I had an assistant coach as well. He's a good friend of mine. He was one of my groomsmen. We had played together in college, and he knew me, and he knew my temperament, and he knew uh, how I liked things to go. So we came to the last game of a season. It was against a team that I knew that we should beat. We had prepared hard, we had worked hard all season, 
And so I was excited for this game. And so I'd, I'd come in and I'd promised everyone that they would get playing time that game. Even the, the players that perhaps uh, weren't working as hard or, or just uh, couldn't typically play at that level. I promised everyone's gonna get time on the field today. And they were elated. So midway through the first half, a uh, series of mistakes led to uh, the other team scoring a goal. And so we went into halftime down one to zero, and I was pretty upset. So the guys were grabbing some water, and, and my friend, the other coach, grabs me, pulls me aside before we did the whole team talk at halftime. And he says, uh, he said something that, that really hit me hard in the moment, and it, it stuck with me. And he said, Andrew, don't change anything. What do, you, what do you mean? Like, we need to leave our best players in, and we need to score some goals and, and win, and then, you know, if there's time, maybe we'll get uh, the rest of the players in. He said, don't change anything. Came in with a plan. Stick to the plan. Trust the preparation. Trust the work. That's what he was saying to me. He's been preparing all season. He's been working all season. Trust the prep that you've done. Trust the work that you've done. So when we came back to the, the team, just after the two of us talking, that's what we said. We're not changing anything. Everyone's still going to get to play. And yeah, it, it, the story has a happy ending. They, they went in, they scored a couple of goals, everyone got to play, we won, and it was, it was happy. Uh, and I don't, I don't tell this story to be like, what a great coach. If anything, uh, if anything it's quite the opposite, isn't it? Uh, I had such a small view, I had such a narrow view of things in that moment, uh, I was ready to, to throw the plan out the window and change everything and... Uh, I needed to hear that lesson from my friend. Trust the plan, trust the work, right? And so that's what this text is calling us to do this morning. Trust in the Lord. Trust his plan, even when the situation around us seems dire, seems like we don't understand what's going on or we can't understand what's going on. Trust the Lord. Trust his work. So that's where we're going. We're going to see this call to faith, this call to trust in the Lord. And to get there... To begin with, we're going to see the danger of false piety. Danger of false piety, and then we'll see the way that the world works, and then at the end we'll see this call to faith. So the danger of false piety, the way the world works, and then a call to faith. So as we, as we begin, we dig in, we look at this danger of false piety. We come to verse 10. It begins with, with what our preacher sees. There is a vanity, excuse me, there is, then I saw the wicked buried. He's looking around and, and he sees the wicked die just like everyone does. And we've heard this teaching from Ecclesiastes. But pay attention to who these wicked people are. They're the ones going in and out of the holy place. Not only are they going in and out, but they're praised for it. What are they doing? What's, what's happening here? These wicked people, they're going in to be seen. They're going to put their their piety, they're going to put their religiosity on display. They're going to make sure that everyone knows exactly why they're there. This is the Pharisee in the temple that prays, thank God I'm not like these tax collectors and sinners. That's who this passage is talking about. They're performing, right? They're not worshiping. They're not building one another up. They're there to be seen. They're there for themselves. Now, I know that some of your translations might have a different word, that instead of praised, it might say forgotten. There's even a note about it in the ESV. Uh, there are a lot of textual issues, a lot of things to consider in the grammar in this passage. 
Uh, and it makes a difference, doesn't, doesn't it? Whether these people are being praised for their false worship or whether they will eventually be forgotten. It's a significant issue. Many commentators say this is one of the most difficult verses in the book. But what's going on is, is that the city around is looking at these wicked people. And what happens when we see people that look really good? Do we forget them or do we praise them? It tends to be that, that when we see people that we like, that we think we ought to respect, that we praise them. There are, like I said, there are many textual issues. I think the word really should be praised, and if you're curious about the linguistic part of that, we can talk about that after the sermon. So come and ask me about that if you're curious as to why. But what's happening is that there's this phenomenon of celebrity. These people are coming in and out to make sure that they're seen. They're not going in and finding a corner like that tax collector in the temple who was repentant. They're coming in to make sure that they're seen. And more than that, the city is praising them for it. Everyone's looking around and, see, and saying how great they are because they see them coming in and out of the temple so much. And so from this, we ought to take a warning because does this happen today? Absolutely. Do people come to church with, with always the purest of motives or do sometimes people come just to be associated with a certain group of people or to be seen there? Of course, that happens, doesn't it? I know that that was a temptation for me when I was younger, when I would go to church, and especially to youth group. I'd go there just to be with my friends, to see my friends, to be seen there. So that's a real temptation. It's something that we ought to watch out for. We ought to look out for that in ourselves. And yes, that's even a temptation for pastors. It really is. And, and why wouldn't it be? Why wouldn't we want people to look up to us? So sometimes we do that. We look up to religious leaders that don't deserve it. If you're not familiar, the, the, Mars Hill, uh, the Rise and Fall of Mars Hill podcast uh, illustrates that perfectly. It's a long podcast, several episodes, but it's worth listening to because there, there are men that are claiming authority that, uh, that they shouldn't have. They're there to be seen. They're there to gain celebrity and fame for themselves. So it's a temptation for all of us. I'm not just speaking to you, I'm speaking to myself as well. This is something that we ought to watch out for, this danger of false piety. But remember this, church is not about us. It's not. Whether we worship, uh, whether we think that the worship was good or whether we, we liked the sermon, uh, that's not the point. It's a temptation that we ought to be aware of. It's the temptation to make worship about us, but it's not. Coming together as God instructs and worshiping him the way that he instructs and how he's told us to worship him, that's the point. He's told us that we're to pray, to have the gospel proclaimed, to sing praises, and to conduct the sacraments appropriately. That's what worship is when we come together as a corporate body. It's for God directed by God, and it is God who calls us to worship each Sunday, and it is him and him alone that we worship. It's not about us. So that's the warning. It's the warning that goes on in our next verse, verse 11, because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily. The heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. So maybe we see these, uh, we see people who are 
coming and displaying their, their false religiosity, their false piety, and we wonder if, if anything will ever happen. It doesn't happen on our timeline. When we see evil happen around us, uh, it's, it's good that we can see justice. It doesn't always happen on our, in our timeline. It doesn't tell us that evil people will never be judged. It says that it will come in not a speedily manner. This means that judgment is coming. No, it doesn't happen on our timeline. It might not happen in the way or the manner that we think. We can trust that that judgment is coming. We see this don't we? We look at the evil in the world and we wonder, as the psalmist wonders, how long, O Lord? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? We wonder these things when we see the evil around us. Verse 12 now in our text, though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, and so we wonder. We wonder why we're going to skip down to verse 13. We'll, we'll come back to verse 12. We'll finish verse 12 in a little bit. Verse 13. But it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he, that's the Lord, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. So what's the warning? What's the warning in this danger of false piety? The warning's fear God. Don't come to worship like an evildoer. The warning is to come by faith and not by any self-serving motive. Come to worship the Lord who calls us out of darkness and into light. Come and worship the risen Lord Jesus. Meet with him by his spirit. So that warning, it's death and punishment. The gift, though, the gift of faith is the gift of life eternal with Christ. We see the wicked prosper all around us, don't we? We see it all the time. We see it now. Solomon saw it in his day, and it's, it's nothing new. In this passage, it's called a vanity. It's the way the world works. It's the way, this is our second point. We've seen the warning of, of this false piety, the danger there. Now we'll see the way that the world works, at least from Solomon's point of view. So how does it work? Back in verse 14, there is a vanity that takes place on earth that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said, this also is vanity. And this seems pretty straightforward, doesn't it? We see the same thing to be true. This is uh, the same issue that Solomon has dealt with, that he's observed in chapter 6 and chapter 7, and he returns again to this vanity. And rightfully so, because it's frustrating, isn't it? We can see righteous people live lives of, of poverty and toil and struggle and suffering, and we see wicked people prosper and live long lives. It's frustrating, isn't it? It doesn't seem right. Perhaps you've been keeping up with the news recently and you're following the account of Elizabeth Holmes. If you're not familiar with Miss Holmes, she was a Stanford student who founded a company at age 19. In fact, she dropped out of Stanford to pursue this startup, and it was a company that did blood testing. And after a couple of years, she claimed that they'd developed a method of testing just a couple of drops of blood from someone that would indicate all types of uh, diseases and, and different issues. And she attracted huge investments from families like the Waltons, who founded Walmart. And she had government contracts and at the peak, her company was valued around $9 billion. But it was all a lie. 
Blood tests didn't work. She was just found guilty recently on eight counts of fraud. She's 37 years old now. So how is it that for nearly 20 years that she could defraud the government, that she could defraud investors, and really even the general public, and become a billionaire because of the lies that she's told? So maybe you, you read this story and you hear of it and you think, well, well, good that she's finally been caught. And it is a good thing when justice is done and we ought to rejoice when justice is done. But her sentencing, even though she's been found guilty, her sentencing won't happen until September of later this year. So whatever fines and, and restitution she'll have to pay, she'll still be rich at the end of it. And though uh, jail time might be severe, it's still going to take a while for that to come about. So from my point of view, and, and perhaps others see it differently, and I can understand that, but from my point of view, it seems like she's been able to prosper because of the lies that she's told. So we see wicked people prospering. And on the flip side, we can think of Job. And there's no better example uh, of a righteous person suffering except of Christ, of course. You all know what the Lord said to Satan. He said, have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him on earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. But then what happened to Job? His children died. They were crushed in their own home. His flocks, his, his source of wealth and income were stolen. All his servants were killed or captured. But still Job remains faithful to the Lord. Eventually even Job's flesh is attacked uh, and he's uh, covered with boils, and all he can do is sit in sackcloth and ash and mourn and scrape his skin with a broken piece of pottery. So how is it the, that the one of whom the Lord says, a blameless and upright man, how is it that he suffers so much? Why do the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer? Let's be honest about this point. This is an issue that we have to wrestle with. It's something that we as Christians have to come to grips with. This is the way that the world works. It's, it's the reality of living in a fallen world. And that's the point we have to keep in mind, that we live in a fallen world. So too often, when people look at suffering of, of those that they consider innocent, they come to the conclusion that God is either not good or not all-powerful or both. And then they think it's a vanity because when they see the wicked and the righteous, everyone dies, so it's all vanity but it's on the fallenness of the world that we, we really ought to rest for a moment. Because how did sin enter the world? Well, a good and loving God endued our first parents, Adam and Eve, with free will. And in that free will, they eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they sin. And their sin is passed on to us, and sin begets more sin. But more than that, all of creation is infected with sin. So now instead of peace and unity and a creation that worships God fully and is fully bent on, on his glory and his worship, instead of all that, we have wrestling and, and discord and disorder. We have a creation that longs for the day when God will restore that order, when he will make a new heavens and a new earth creation is longing for that day.
Sin didn't just cause more sin. Sin also causes miseries. Just as Jesus taught about the blind man, that it was neither his sin nor his parents' sin that caused his blindness. His blindness, no. It it was a fact that God used to glorify himself. It wasn't because of sin. It was a misery, but it was still an effect of the fall. It's still an effect of sin infecting creation. So when we see uh, blindness, we know that it's not a sin to be blind. But when we see blindness or disease or death, we're seeing the effects of the fall. We're not seeing a failure of God's goodness or a failure of his power or of his love. We're seeing the results of sin. And that's the way the world works. But thankfully, we have a God that doesn't leave it as bad as it possibly can be. We have to trust him because the world is not as bad as it possibly could be. The Lord is still working and still active in the world. And that's the way it works, this mix of sin and God working in the world. And sometimes, for now, while we're this side of glory, that means that the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer. Sometimes that means that people that should know better don't follow the Lord. It means that some people will come to church and think them godly believers, but they're not. Sometimes that means that pastors will lead with no real conversion of their own. And that's a result of the fall. But thank God he didn't leave it that way. And no, we don't always see the work of the Lord, but he is working. That's where faith comes in. We must trust in the Lord, trust in his work, trust his plan. So in the remainder of our time this morning, we'll see the call to faith that this passage gives us. So look back with me at verse 16. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one eyes sleep. There's a moment here where we ought to take Solomon's search for wisdom. He applies his heart to know wisdom, and we ought to do the same thing. Wisdom is good. We heard several weeks ago now that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly. So we should seek wisdom. That's a good thing to do, to have wisdom, to understand the world around us, to try and to understand what the Lord is doing. Our passage continues, verse 17. Then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. So what are these two verses driving at? Sometimes life doesn't make sense. Despite our application of wisdom, our seeking to understand what's going on, seeking to understand what the Lord is doing, sometimes life doesn't make sense. And that's okay, because we can trust in the Lord. This passage is also pushing us to understand the the inscrutability of God. It's pointing to the fact that we don't always know what he's doing or why. That's a fact that's attested to many times in Scripture. Listen to Romans 11. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. 
Amen. Or listen to what Job says. When Job's been seeking an audience with the Lord, if I could just ask him, if I could plead my case before the Lord, and he finally gets that chance, what's Job's response? This is what he says to the Lord. He says, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. So what's the apostle's response to God when he doesn't understand? It's trust. It's faith. What is Job's response when he's confronted by the Lord? It's trust and faith. So what should our response be? Trust and faith. When we look at the world around us and we see the the false piety of pretenders, when we see the wicked prospering and the righteous suffering, what should our response be? Trust and faith in the Lord. That's what our text is pushing us to do. And there's a subtle shift that happens in verse 12, between verse 10 and verse 12. Verse 10, then I saw the wicked buried. The second half of verse 12 begins, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before the Lord. Did you catch the shift? I saw the wicked buried, yet I know it will be well with those who fear God. He sees the wicked He sees them die, he sees the righteous, he sees them die as well, and he sees wicked people prospering, righteous people suffering, yet he knows the Lord will take care of it all. Friends, this is our call to faith. This is our call to look beyond what we see in the world around us. This is a call to look to Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. This is a call to trust in all that the Lord has told us in Scripture. It's a call to keep our eyes on the objective and not the subjective, ever-changing circumstances around us. Solomon's looking around at everything under the sun and how it's all vanity. He sees the wicked being praised for their false piety, but he knows it will not go well for them. He knows that God is just and good. So how do we do this? How do we have these same eyes of faith? How in the midst of our own circumstances can we have faith. Well, first, pray. Pray that God would give you more. Faith is a gift. It's a gift of the Lord. It's him who applies salvation to us, gives us faith, and so pray for more of it. Ask for more of that gift of faith. Pray that you would keep your eyes fixed on him. One way that you can do that is to read scripture. How can you know who you're supposed to have faith in unless You read about him. Read about him where he's revealed himself. How can you have faith and trust in the promises that that he's made unless you know what those promises are and you find them in scripture? And know, most importantly, that Christ died for your sins and that if you believe in him, you have everlasting life with him. Make Christ and his gift of salvation the foundation of your life. And with him is the foundation. Those changing situations become less and less dire because you are trusting your eternity and your life to Christ and his work. So that's the call. Have faith in Christ. 
Trust in your Savior even when others don't. Trust in him even when we cannot understand what he's doing or why. Trust him even when we see the way the world works and it just doesn't seem fair. Trust him. Trust him because even the wisest among us don't come close to God's wisdom. Trust him in the way that the Proverbs tell us to trust. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord. Friends, this is the call. Trust in him. Have faith in Christ. So won't you pray with me? Our gracious Lord and God, we confess that we don't understand what you do. We are not wise enough to see it, but you are, Lord. You are wise and powerful and mighty, and you are gracious and you are good. And we thank you for who you are. Would you help us to know more and more who you are? Would you grow our faith? Even when we don't think that the world around us makes sense, Father, help us to trust in you. Father, help us to do as Proverbs calls us, trust in you with all of our hearts. Father, that's our prayer today. Would you grow us in faith? And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.